I have a close friend who told me an amusing story this past week. Uh, he's got a buddy who is struggling with an addiction to alcohol. And so he's been telling his buddy, you know, you really need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ because Jesus will give you the power you need to break this addiction. In fact, you ought to read, read Jesus' story. Read the book of John. It's the biography of Jesus. And, you know, you get a sense of who Jesus is. So his buddy goes to Barnes & Noble and says, I'm looking for the book of John. So they, they, they look the shelves over. They can't find the book of John. One of the clerks goes online. She can't find, we don't have the book of John in, in our list here. So the buddy comes back to my friend and he says, that book of John doesn't exist. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you're the ones who are starting to chuckle right now because you, you know why the confusion. See, the book of John is not a standalone book. It's one of 66 books that make up what we call the Bible. There are two parts to the Bible. There's an Old Testament, 39 books written by a variety of authors before Christ, and a New Testament, 27 additional books written by a variety of authors after Christ. One, one of those authors, the Apostle John, wrote a biography of Jesus called the Book of John or the Gospel of John. And so my friend got his buddy a Bible, and his buddy is now reading through the Book of John. Well, at Christ Community Church, one of our goals is to introduce you to the Bible. The Bible is God's word. This is God's primary means of speaking to us today. So if you want a relationship with God, if you want to get to know God, then you've got to become a student of his book, which is why we've put together a four-year Bible reading program, a schedule that will take you through the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, over four years, reading just a little bit every day. And it's also why several times a year we will do a weekend series called Bible Savvy where we'll drop into whatever book of the Bible our reading schedule currently has us reading. So if you go to the schedule, the Bible Savvy schedule now, it's got us in the book of Leviticus. So we're reading Leviticus these days. And this is what this series is about that we began last week, a six-part six series. Now, truth be known... Even those who are familiar with the Bible tend to stay away from the book of Leviticus because it's somewhat difficult to understand. And, and that's unfortunately unfortunate because interestingly, uh, over the centuries in Jewish homes, this was one of the first books taught the children. Kids began memorizing the book of Leviticus at age three in, in Jewish homes. And even in Christianity, this book is foundational to our understanding of the faith. Because if you don't get Leviticus, then you don't really understand Jesus. You don't understand why God sent his son to earth. You don't understand why Jesus had to die on a cross. It's all there in the book of Leviticus. So if you brought a Bible with you, I invite you now to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. And there's an outline in your program I encourage you to follow along. Leviticus 16 is the middle of the book. It's the pinnacle. It's the high point of the book of Leviticus. And it's all about, and this is point number one in your outline, it's all about the Day of Atonement rituals. Now, if your Bible's open to Leviticus 16, I'm constantly reminding you, if you want to know what a section of the Bible is all about, just look at the header. Look at the heading over the section. And it'll give you kind of a sneak preview of what you're about to read, a capsule summary. So in my Bible over Leviticus 16, it says the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was ancient Israel's most high holy day. In fact, it eventually became known simply as the day. 
the day. Now, today, Jews all around the world, once a year, they'll celebrate the Day of Atonement in synagogues everywhere. They don't typically call it the Day of Atonement. If you come from a Jewish background or you've got Jewish friends, it usually goes by its Hebrew name, which is what? Do you know? Yom Kippur. You heard of Yom Kippur? Every October, it's celebrated by practicing Jews. It's the Day of Atonement. So what does atonement mean? The Day of Atonement. Well, you actually get a sense of the meaning of the word by just looking at the word structure. If you would break the word down into three parts, what you'd have is at one meant. So at one meant. So atonement is about how sinful people are able to experience at one meant a relationship with a holy God. So on the day of atonement, the, uh, the high priest, the high priest would perform some ceremonies. And these ceremonies were done in the tabernacle, the worship center. The high priest was the top dog, top religious dog. And he would do some rituals that would cleanse people from their sins because sin is what breaks our relationship with God. Okay, sin is choosing to go our way instead of God's way, and that flagrant disobedience makes it impossible to enjoy fellowship with God. Because we're sinners, we can't have at one minute. And so the high priest's responsibility on the Day of Atonement was to cleanse people of their, their annual accumulation of sin. Now, in one sense, the people had already been doing this all year long. See, all through the year, whenever they sinned, they would bring an animal to the priest to be sacrificed, a payment for their sins. And so they, this was done periodically throughout the course of the year. But those sacrifices were not quite thorough enough. They weren't quite thorough enough. And so on the Day of Atonement, the high priest did these rituals that, that took cleansing to a new level. Okay, if I can use an analogy here that might be helpful, uh, I have this tendency to do spot cleaning of my living room carpet. So if my dog lies in there and leaves a, you know, a pool of drool, I go in with my spray bottle and I scrub it clean. Okay? So if we have a party and people are over and somebody drops their cake or a cup of coffee or punch, you, you, know, you go in with the spray cleaner and you clean it up. Or someone drags in dirt on their shoes and you get a little patch of dirt, you spray clean it. But after a time, my, my living room carpet looks like a bunch of shadows of where stains used to be, which is why once a year I bring in the pros. Okay, once a year I bring in the dude with the steam machine, the guy who's going to take it to a new level, okay, the guy who's going to give a, a more thorough, deep cleaning of my carpet. This is exactly what the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement. He performed some rituals that deep cleaned the people. And in addition, in the process, it also deep cleaned the tabernacle, the worship center, which had been sullied over the course of the year by not so clean people coming and going. So Leviticus 16 provides the high priest with some instructions for the annual cleansing of the people in the tabernacle. We're going to look at some of those Day of Atonement rituals. Let me describe three of them to you, okay? The first one has to do with the high priest in the most holy place. Okay, the high priest in the most holy place. And I'm going to read the opening verses of this chapter to you. If you've got a Bible, you could follow along. If not, you'll see the words up on the screen. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. 
The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. And this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. And from the Israelite community, he's to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. And God, please help us understand it. There, there, there's a lot in these opening verses of Leviticus 16 to unpack. Okay, it begins with a recap of a tragic event that, that was described a few chapters earlier in Leviticus 10. Okay, it's a story about Aaron's two boys, two sons. Now, Aaron was the brother of Moses, and he was also the original high priest. And he had two sons, so they would have been Moses' nephews. And they served with their dad, with Aaron, in the tabernacle as assistant priests. But, but these guys didn't take their job seriously. They were kind of goof-offs, okay? And so, so one day they're in there goofing off and they stick their noses into the most holy place where you're not supposed to go because this is where you find the undiluted presence of God. And when they stick their nose in the most holy place, fire from the presence of God comes out and consumes them. I gave you an analogy last weekend to help you understand this. I said, you know, the presence of God is like the sun. On the one hand, we love the sun, right? Who doesn't love the sun? Okay, especially during the winter months in Chicago area, right? Gray skies, when the sun breaks through and brings warmth and cheer and growth. And you know, we love the sun. But the sun is also very dangerous, isn't it? You don't want to get too close to the sun. I mean, you jump in your little spaceship and you fly to the sun and you explode. Okay, this is the presence of God. We love it, but it's dangerous. Aaron's two sons died because they treated the presence of God in a cavalier fashion. And now Aaron, the high priest, is told that on the Day of Atonement, he's to go where? Into the most holy place, the place where his two sons met their end. Well, Leviticus 16 tells us it's okay. The, the high priest is allowed to enter the most holy place. He's the only person who could do so. And he was allowed to do so only on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. And he had to prepare himself for this privilege of going into the most holy place in a number of ways. Uh, look back at chapter 16, verse 3 again. It starts by saying he must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. These are sacrifices for his own sins. Okay, before he steps into the presence of a holy God, he's got to take care of his own sins. Go on to verse 4. Verse 4 describes what the high priest was supposed to wear when he went into the most holy place. And it's an interesting outfit because of its simplicity. See, this was not the whole... The high priest's usual attire. Uh, Exodus chapter 28 describes the typical priestly garments. They were made of colorful fabrics and they had intricate embroidery and there was gold and there was jewels. And when people saw the high priest on a typical day, he looked like a king. And that's because he represented God, the king of the universe, to the people. 
But on the Day of Atonement, his job was not to represent God to the people. His job was to represent the people to God. And so when he came into the most holy place, he wore the garments described in verse 4, which Bible scholars tell us were the garments, the simple garments of a servant in that day. He came before Almighty God on behalf of the people as God's servant. And before he could even put the clothes on, into verse 4 says he was to take a bath. He was to do again a ritualistic cleaning. One, one more detail, drop down to verse 12. One more thing he had to do. He is to take a censer, verse, verse 12 says, full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. What's going on here? He takes some burning coals, he takes some incense, he goes into the most holy place and they create smoke. Why smoke? Smoke screen. Smokes because if he sees the glory of God directly, he's going to die. That's how powerful the presence of God is. See, this is what happens to Moses, if you recall this story. When Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments from God, what's going on at the top of Mount Sinai? Cloud envelopes it. Why? So Moses can't look directly at the glory of God. See, the, the presence of God is serious business. This is the high priest in the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. Let me tell you about a second ritual. It has to do with the blood of sacrifices. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest is required to offer five animal sacrifices. He offers two animals for himself. If you, you got your Bible open, they're described in verse 3 as a young bull and a ram. And then he offers three animal sacrifices for the people, described in verse 5 as two male goats and a ram. Now you're reading this, and if you've been reading through the Old Testament, you say, you know, what is the deal with all the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? Is, is God some kind of bloodthirsty deity? But let me explain this as simply as I can. Okay, the, the Bible says that the wages, the payment, the penalty for our sins is death. Now, now to some of us, that sounds awfully sincere because truth be known, we don't consider ourselves to be horrible sinners. So the, pay, the penalty for sin is death? But, but you need to understand what sin does. See, sin is when we go our way instead of God's way. And when we do that, friends, we disconnect from the one who's the source of life. What happens when you unplug from the one who's the source of life? The consequence is death. Okay, and so when you unplug from God, you die spiritually on the inside, which leads to an eventual physical death. And if that situation isn't remedied in this life, it becomes a permanent state. You experience eternal death, eternal separation from God. You may have heard me use the analogy before of, of vacuuming. So when I go to vacuum my house, sounds like I'm a clean ma maniac, doesn't it? Spot cleaning and vac. So you plug in the vacuum and you get further and further and further away from the wall socket until eventually the plug pulls out. Now, how do I know with my back to the wall socket, how do I know that the plug is pulled out? Call it out. How do I know? The vacuum dies. It dies because it's disconnected. 
What our sin does, friends, small sins, medium-sized sins, big sins, our sin disconnects us from God, the source of life. The consequence is death. Now, in Old Testament times, God graciously accepted for the payment of sins the death of an animal as a substitute for the death of a person. So I sin, I deserve to die, but God accepts an animal death in my place. That's the background for these bloody animal sacrifices. Leviticus 17, go over one chapter. Look at verse 11. It says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. God says, I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's lives. So that's why you got blood, lots of blood, to pay for people's sins. And quite frankly, if this sounds messy, if this sounds gruesome to us, maybe it's because God intended it to be just a little bit yucky. See, we have a tendency to sanitize our sins. We have a tendency to see our sins as not being as sinful as other sins. And so when we're reading a passage like the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, if you're following the Bible-savvy reading schedule, every other day you're, you're reading in Leviticus or the Gospel of Matthew. And we've just finished Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And you find Jesus saying things like, You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, if you hate somebody so much that you call them an idiot, then you've committed murder in your heart. A little later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, if you lust after somebody, you've committed adultery with that person in your heart. See, so, so Jesus has a way of making us see our sins for being as nasty as they truly are. You know, the gruesomeness of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament reminded people that sins are disgusting. Your sins are disgusting, whatever they are. My sins are disgusting in the eyes of a holy God. And so the high priest takes the blood of the animal that he's sacrificed for himself into the most holy place. Look at verse 14. He sprinkles this blood on his behalf seven times on the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And then he does the same thing next verse, verse 15, with the blood of the animal he sacrificed for the people. Now, why sprinkle the blood on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant? Do you happen to remember what is in the Ark of the Covenant that Indiana Jones discovered in the first Raiders movie? Do you know what's in the Ark of the Covenant? Three things in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, number one, the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, God's moral laws on them. Secondly, you got a staff that used to be owned by Aaron that God has miraculously caused to blossom. And, and then you got a little bowl of manna, the food that God fed the people while they were wandering in the wilderness. What do these three items have in common? You say, none of these things is like the other, right? I'll tell you what they had in common. They were all symbols of rebellion, sinful rebellion. The Ten Commandments re represented the moral law of God that we flagrantly disobey again and again every day. Aaron's staff that blossomed recalled an incident in the life of Israel when the people mutinied against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and God had to back his boy Aaron by causing his staff to miraculously blossom as a way of saying, pay attention to Aaron, he's my man. 
And the manna, the manna that God fed them in the wilderness, it was only because they wouldn't stop complaining. They grumbled again and again. Where's the food? Where's the food? Where's the food? And so here we have three symbols. The ark contains symbols of people's sinful rebellion against God. And the penalty for sin is what? Is death, which is why the blood of these sacrifices is sprinkled. These death substitutes, their blood is sprinkled on the atonement cover of the ark. You get it? Good. One, one final, one final ritual I want to tell you about. It has to do with the scapegoat. Uh, earlier I mentioned that the sacrifices for the people involved two male goats. Now, one of those male goats, it was slaughtered and it was bl its blood was brought into the most holy place. The other goat became the scapegoat. What's a scapegoat? Okay, this has nothing to do with the legend about a baseball team that couldn't win a championship in 100 plus years, all right, until they fixed the goat problem. All right, this, this, the, the scapegoat, the scapegoat is an animal that was chosen by lot. Okay, the two goats were separated because the priest, the high priest, rolled some dice, and one was chosen to be slaughtered and its blood brought into the most holy place. The other was chosen by the throwing of the dice to be the scapegoat. Drop down to verse 21. This is what the high priest does with the scapegoat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task, and the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. According to tradition, now this is not in the Bible, but according to Jewish tradition, the guy who took the scapegoat into the wilderness actually pushed it off a cliff to make sure it died. See, if it represented the sin of the people being carried away, you didn't want that sucker wandering back into camp the next day. Okay, oh, our sins are back. Oh, no. So, had to make sure it died. Now, interestingly, friends, the goat that was killed and its blood taken into the most holy place and the scapegoat both symbolized the very same thing, cleansing from sin. In fact, according to tradition, again, this is not in the Bible, but according to the tradition of the rabbis, the two goats were chosen in part because they looked alike. They were almost identical because they were going to be the flip sides of the same coin. Two pictures of cleansing from sin. Why, why does God give two pictures? Because most people didn't have a chance to see the first picture. See, that first lamb was slaughtered and the high priest took its blood into the most holy place, but nobody goes into the most holy place but the, the high priest. Nobody sees it. And so God says, let me give you another picture. And this is a picture everybody, everybody could see the high priest put his hands on the goat. Everybody could hear him confess the sins of people, the kinds of things that you and I do that are sinful. Confess them over the head of the goat. Everybody could see that goat wander off and get further and further and further and further away until it disappeared and you can't see it anymore. There goes my sin. Yeah. Wow, tell me that isn't good news. Okay, David, King David, puts it this way in Psalm 103, verse 12. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. That is a wonderful thought, friends. 
That this holy God is willing to take our sin as far from us as the east is from the west. Those disgusting things we do. Those big sins from the past, not to mention all the all those nasty sins that plague us throughout the course of a week. The scapegoat takes it all away. Well, that's a quick summary of the Day of Atonement rituals. You got the high priest in the most holy place, you got the blood of sacrifices, you got the scapegoat. Now we move on to point number two Jesus Christ's fulfillment of these Day of Atonement rituals. Jesus Christ's fulfillment of these rituals. How many of you have ever put together a piece of furniture that you bought at Ikea? Okay, you know what this is like. You know the deal, right? They don't give you written instructions anymore. You get pictures. So you got all these pictures that you follow. Several years ago, my son and I, we bought a dresser for his bedroom, and we assembled it. Somewhere in the middle, he became rather exasperated. He said, Dad, I think Ikea is Swedish for junk. And... Uh, I'm not sure about that, but we eventually got the thing together. So suppose you come to my house today and you say, hey, I'd like to see that Ikea dresser. So I, I get the instruction manual and I go, oh, there it is. And you say, no, 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 I'd like to see the dresser. And I point to the picture. I say, there it is. How many of you know there's a big difference between a picture of a dresser and a dresser? Okay. <laughs> the book of Leviticus is a series of pictures that are fulfilled in the reality of Christ. Jesus Christ is the reality. The pictures point to Christ. They're not the reality. So let's take a look at how Jesus fulfills several pictures associated with the Day of Atonement. I'm going to give you three pictures, three snapshots. The first is a picture of the tabernacle, this, this worship center, this tent. It symbolizes the presence of God. Let me back up a little bit here. Let me say again, God created people to enjoy intimate, unrestrained fellowship with himself. But sin ruins all that. Okay, when we choose to go our way instead of God's way, friend, a huge chasm develops in our relationship with God. Now, God wants to bridge that chasm. God wants a relationship back. So in the days of Moses, God took the initiative to restore fellowship with humanity by moving into the neighborhood, okay? All the people at the, uh, of the day, they're living in tents, so what does God do? He has a tent built for himself, and that's where God comes to dwell. So the temple, you want to meet with God, you want to encounter God, you want a relationship with God, you go to the tabernacle later to become the temple, Okay, in fact, the tabernacle was called the Tent of Meeting. Now, fast forward 1,400 years. Jesus Christ comes to planet Earth. One of his followers, a guy named the Apostle John, he writes a book, a biography about Jesus, the book of John, which you can't find at Barnes & Noble, all right? And in the opening chapter of John's Gospel, John says something amazing about Jesus. He calls Jesus the Word of God, the living Word of God. And in John 1, verse 14, he says, The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. There's a phrase in that verse I want to park on. Jesus came to earth and made his dwelling among us. If you could read that in the original Greek text, what, what you discover 
is that the phrase is literally, the verb there is literally, he pitched his tent among us. Sound familiar? He tabernacled among us. What is John saying? John's saying, even as in the days of Moses, God came to live among people in the tabernacle, so in the days of Jesus, God has come to live among people in the person of his son. You want a relationship with God? You find it through Jesus. You want to meet God? You want to encounter God? You want to get to know God? You get to know Jesus. Jesus is the, the reality to whom the picture of the tabernacle pointed. And, and here's the cool thing. It's not just the tabernacle as a whole that pointed to Jesus. It's one particular part of the tabernacle, specifically that points to Jesus, and that's the curtain. The, the curtain that shut off the most holy place, the presence of God. Jesus is that curtain. You say, well, that's kind of weird, you know, a person being a curtain. So let me give you an analogy. I don't know if you're a football fan or you know anything about football history, but back in the 1970s, the Pittsburgh Steelers had a dynasty team. In a period of six years, they won four Super Bowls. And it was, it was largely because of their quarterback, a guy named Terry Bradshaw, who most of us know if you watch football today because he's still an NFL commentator. But, but they not only won because of their offense, they had an amazing defense. Their, their front uh, four defensive linemen were called the Steel Curtain. The Steel Curtain. You couldn't get by them. In fact, in 1976, fifth game of the season, Terry Bradshaw goes out for the rest of the season because of an injury. He's down. How do you win games when you don't have an offense? You win it through good defense. The rest of the year, the entire remaining part of the season, the Pittsburgh Steelers' defense allowed 3.1 points per game. Okay, the steel curtain. Jesus is a curtain. Now, he's not a steel curtain. He's actually a torn curtain. You, you, you remember what happened on the day that Jesus died, the day that Jesus hung on the cross. There was all sorts of strange phenomena going on. The sky turned black. Middle of the day became black as midnight. The ground began to tremble. Okay, graves broke open. And the curtain in the temple that sealed off the most holy place, what happened to the curtain? Call it out. It was torn from top to bottom. What did this symbolize? What did this picture point to? The writer of Hebrews tells us, this is Hebrews chapter 10, says we have confidence to enter the most holy place. We do, not the high priest. We can enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. The curtain was a picture that pointed to Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross opened the way for a relationship with God. Like the high priest of old, we can now go directly into the presence of God and enjoy fellowship with him. This is amazing stuff. So this is the first picture pointing to Jesus that I want to mention. Here's a second picture. The picture of the high priest. Okay, the Old Testament high priest was, uh, was a mediator. He was a go-between, between God and people. He represented God to the people and the, the people to God. Now keep in mind that the high priest was the only person who could go into the most holy place, into the presence of God, and even the high priest could only go there once a, day on the, once a year on the Day of Atonement. Well, the New Testament writer of Hebrews, the one who tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the, and the curtain. He also tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the high priest. 
By the way, just an aside here. The New Testament book of Hebrews is a commentary on the religion of the Old Testament. Okay, it was written to Christ followers who came out of a Jewish background, Hebrew Christians, which is why it's called Hebrews. And, and throughout this New Testament book, we're, we're, we're taught why it is that, that Jesus supersedes, why he's far superior to this religion that, that people had left behind in order to follow him. One of the things it points out is that Jesus is a much better high priest than the Old Testament high priest. I mean, for one thing, the, the Old Testament high priest would enter the most holy place with fear and trepidation coming into the presence of a holy God. Jesus comes into the presence of God as the Son of God with boldness and confidence. The high priest would have to come with the blood of a sacrifice for his own sins. Jesus carries no blood for his own sins because Jesus is perfect. The, the high priest is mortal, which means that just about the time you get to know the dude, the dude passes away and you got a new high priest. Jesus, his life is indestructible. You kill him on a cross and he, he's raised from the dead. So he's always in the presence of God on our behalf. An indestructible high priest, always there for us. The Old Testament high priest, he didn't always understand your sin. Okay, you bring your goat, your calf to him, and he takes a look at you and says... Uh, you know, this is the fourth time you've been ba back to see me in the last month. You, you, you really think God's going to forgive you again? Not Jesus. Jesus is a sympathetic and empathetic high priest. Let, let me read to you another passage of Scripture. This one is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have a high priest who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I read that and I say, now that's the high priest I want. I want Jesus. I want the guy who's been tempted in every way that I get tempted and yet refused to sin. And so he stands in the presence of God gracious and merciful, telling the Father, I've spilled my blood for this person, for Jim. Yes, that's my high priest. There's a third picture that points to Jesus, and that's the picture of the sacrifices. Let me give you one more verse from Hebrews. This one's Hebrews 9, verse 12. It says that Jesus did not enter by means of the, the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Okay, how did the Old Testament high priest, how did he pay for the people's sins? He did it with the blood of goats and calves. But, but friends, the value of an animal sacrifice was not long-lasting. It was a stopgap measure. It covered your present sins. But what about the sins you're going to do next week and next year and the year after that? See, it was going to be one animal sacrifice after another, after another, after another. And in the end, it couldn't really change you as a person, couldn't make you a better person, couldn't make you a person who'd stop doing the stuff you had to offer a sacrifice for. And then along comes Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says he offered his own blood, the, the blood of the eternal Son of God. And because he's the eternal Son of God, his blood is of infinite worth. So much so that if you surrender your life to Jesus, he pays for your sins, past, present, future. Everything's covered. 
And then when you surrender to him, he comes to live on the inside by his spirit and he begins to transform you from the inside out. He begins to make you a new person. The blood of, of goats and calves could never have done that. The sacrifices point to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement sacrifices, which includes not only the animals that were killed and their blood brought into the most holy place, it also includes the offering of the scapegoat. And that, that takes us, let me segue into our final point before I talk some more about the scapegoat. Our final point today is what is our response? What's our response to all that we've just learned about the Day of Atonement? Go back to Leviticus chapter 16. I want to read the very last verse of the chapter to you. So there's this very detailed description of the Day of Atonement. Then you come to verse 34 and it says, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. What is to be a lasting ordinance? Atonement. Now, lasting ordinance pops up three times in the closing section of Leviticus 16. And as I've told you, whenever God repeats himself, pay attention. He's making a point. The point is that atonement was not just an Old Testament ritual. It's a lasting ordinance. It points to something that people still need today. See, friends, if we want a relationship with God, if we want at-one-ment with the God of the universe, then we must respond to what Jesus Christ has done for us as our tabernacle, our high priest, our sacrifice. How do we respond? How does God want you to respond to his son, to Jesus Christ? Two ways spelled out in Leviticus 16. First, we confess our sins. This takes us back to the scapegoat. Let me just remind you about the scapegoat. Go down to verse 21. Let me read it again. The high priest is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness. See, when you come to Jesus, this is, this is where it begins. This is what you got to do. You've got to lay your hands, as it were, on Jesus Christ. You don't do it literally. You do it in faith, and you confess over Jesus your sins. we got our favorites, right? And you confess over Jesus your anger. You confess over Jesus your lust, your materialism, your gossip, your you name it. And the guilt of your sin is transferred onto him, and he carries it far, far, as far as the east is from the west away from you. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus became our scapegoat. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Our sins confessed over him, placed on Jesus. He took him to the cross, to the grave. Buried him forever. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made him, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. The spotless lamb of God became sullied with my sin. He became sin for me so that he could carry my sin far, far 
away. We confess our sins. Have you ever done this? First time you do it, friend, it is so absolutely liberating to confess all your junk, the big stuff from your past, the grubby stuff from even this past week, and and you lay it on Jesus and he takes it away. In fact, this becomes a practice of Christ followers, even though once for all covers it on a daily basis as we repent and confess our, our sins, our fellowship with God is restored. You make it a daily habit. And then the second thing you do, we surrender our lives. We surrender our lives. We confess our sins and surrender our lives. Go back to Leviticus 16 one last time. Verse 29 says, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves. Stop there. You must deny yourselves. This is another repeating phrase if you read the last section of Leviticus 16. So God's making a point here. Got to deny yourself. You want at one minute with me, deny your, what does deny yourself mean? It, it means you stop acting as your own savior. You, you stop thinking that you can merit God's salvation on your own steam, through your own good deeds. It, it means you, you give up trying to be your own savior and you put your trust instead. You deny yourself and you put your trust wholly in Jesus Christ. You surrender your life to him. You say, I want you, Jesus, to be the savior, the Lord, the leader of my life. So all the people you saw get baptized today, that's the statement they were making. The the statement was, we have decided to surrender to Christ. He has become the savior, the king, the leader of our lives. Have you ever surrendered to Jesus? If you want at one minute with God, that's where it begins. Now, I'm going to ask the campus pastors at our other campuses to come onto the platforms of their church and close in a word of prayer as I'm going to close right here in a moment in St. Charles. Before I close and I pray with you, I just want to say if you're a guest, you came to see somebody get baptized, I would love to meet you afterwards. And we have a welcome center at the back of our auditorium, a glass-walled room right at the back. Just come on back and say hello. Uh, Also at the back of the section, the zone in which you're seated, there is a table. And next to that table, there's going to be a prayer champion. And they wait there for anybody who has a prayer need. So anything going on in your life that you say, oh, I could use some prayer for that, stop and they will pray for you. Give it to them in a couple of sentences and they would love to intercede with Almighty God on your behalf. And also at that table, you will find what we call a next steps packet. Now let me describe this. What you're about to do, I'm going to close in prayer and give you an opportunity, if you've never done this before, to surrender to Christ. That's the first step you've got to take if you want a relationship with God, at one minute with God. But what's the next step and the step after that? How do you keep this thing going? Well, we got a little booklet that describes that, and it's bound with a Bible, your own copy of the Bible. That's the next step's packet. Now, there's also a welcome bag, so don't confuse the welcome bag, which is for first-time attenders, with the next step's packet. Make sure you get a next step's packet if you pray to surrender your life to Christ. And that's what I'd like to invite you to do right now. So would everybody here in St. Charles just stand with me, and let's pray together. Can you pray something like this from your heart? Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to be my scapegoat.
I want you to take my sin. And go ahead, get personal, get specific. What are, what are your sins of choice? You know what they are. As we said, they're, they're much more disgusting than uh, you can even realize. But Jesus is willing to take them to the cross. Would you place them on Jesus right now? Say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be the one who takes my sin far away. I want you to be the goat that was slain and its blood sprinkled on the atonement cover. I want you to be the torn curtain that opens up access to the presence of God. That's what I want you to be for me. Can you tell God that? That's what you want. You want Jesus to be that for you. Confess your sins over him. And then secondly, surrender your life to him. Tell him, I'm going to stop trying to be my savior. I'm going to stop trying to be the king, the queen of my life. I want to give my throne to you. I want to surrender to you right now. Would you do that in all humility? God's going to hear your heart. If you mean this from your heart, God's going to hear you. Say, Jesus, I want you to be the king of my life. And if you've trusted Jesus in the past, but whoa, it's been a long time since you looked to him for leadership, then this is a time to recommit. This is, this is a time to be broken before him and say, I think I surrendered in the past, but I haven't been behaving like a surrendered person. Today, I want to deny myself afresh and give myself completely to you. Tell him that. Jesus, we just want to thank you for being the tabernacle presence of God, for being the high priest who goes into the most holy place on our behalf and offers your own life for us. We want to thank you for being the sacrifice, the scapegoat that takes our sin far, far away. And we want to take word of you to a lost world. So help us to be your ambassadors this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.